What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's me, the other side of the pillow. I know when you're struggling to fall asleep, you'll flip to me because I'm cooler and maybe that'll help you fall asleep. But you know what else could help you fall asleep? Listening to the sultry sounds of this podcast. Before I continue my first ever journey through the Harry Potter series, just a few quick announcements. First, if you live in Pittsburgh, Columbus, Grand Rapids, or Chicago, you should get ready to see me next week. We are kicking off the next leg of Pot Tour Less, starting on the 15th in Pittsburgh, making our way through those cities I just listed, plus some other ones later on in the year. But if you want to go get tickets and see if we're performing in a city near you, you can go to potterlesspodcast.com slash live. We just did the New York show. It was a blast, and I'm very excited for the remaining shows. Also, it is donation time here at Potterless. Each month, we take a dollar for each member of our team over at patreon.com slash Potterless, and we donate it to a different charity. At the time of recording, we have 606 patrons, meaning we'll be giving $606 to Emergencies Children's Hospital. So I heard about this charity through the Menace Sisters, aka producer-level patrons Veronica and Lada Bartova. This is the charity that the fundraising efforts GISH are supporting, so it's a combination of Random Acts, Legacy of War, and Emergency are teaming together to help out the Children's Ward of Emergency, which is a hospital wing in Afghanistan. This hospital treats children who have been injured by war, and throughout this year, it will help 400 to 500 children get through surgery, medical care, and rehabilitation. Many of these child patients are orphaned or their parents cannot visit them because of COVID restrictions, so this charity is trying to provide extra support and extra comfort for these kids. If you want to learn more about this organization, you can go to emergency.it and thanks to Lada and Veronica for bringing this charitable organization to my attention. And speaking of patrons, we have new patrons to welcome to the team, so shout out to Seth Manuel, Mia, Ariel Mahler, Amber Lynn, Katie Turberg, Monica Rios, Vivian, and Lucy Nettlefold, and a huge shout out to our newest producer level patron Matthew Morrison they join the ranks of Vicky Christine Aaron Clow Marchismo Juan Rosemary Maria Lisa Audra Eleanor Nikita Rachel Alex John Noel Claire Rory Veronica Lada Noah Jennifer Justin Jacob Maya Polly Zena Harlan Nikki Kine Sarah Marta Flor Skyla Adele Professor Threat Ellie Michael Kelly Kerry Connie Jen Nedry Will Marike Ashton Brittany Phelan the Meadows family Ginny Heather Kevin Jarl Pita Callahan Bella Melanie Rees Joseph Madison Tonks Sabrina Sophia Farzan Melanie Matt Okamahime Boney Pony Kelsey Rike Taylor Megan Riley Laurel, Erica, Kendra, Natanya, Yogan, Darcy, Sandra, Craig, Demi, Michelle, Henrika, Casey, Megan, Jack, Stain, Little, Elaria, Gregory, Cawcaw, Ribbon, Jack, Serenity, Haley, Sabrina, Jenny, Eileen, Annette, Hufflepuff, Brett, Mary, Artemis, Samantha, Nina, Tatiana, Karis, Vomit Spiders, Punkfish, Wire Warrior, Joe, Michael, Maya, Jasmine, Neely, Tate, Sam, Sam, Adriana, John, Jody, Dunanash, Emma, Il, Sean, Greg, Matthew, Pingvanachik, Nani, Emma, Tuff, Micah, Michaela, Steamed Nuggets, and Cat Eye Potter, who never go outside wearing suede shoes that they know can't get wet without checking the weather, and then they check the weather outside when it's already 
already too late because they'll be late to the thing that they are going to, but they realize there's rain on the forecast. If you want to be like one of these amazing patrons and get access to bonus episodes, director's commentary, all that good stuff, the entire back catalog of things, you can do so at patreon.com slash Potterless. But without further ado, let's get into episode 188 of Potterless, the second part of our two-part discussion about the shortcomings of representation in Harry Potter, guest starring Delia Gallegos and Michael Harley. Hello, Internet, and welcome back to another episode of Potterless, the tale of a grown man who never read the Harry Potter series as a kid. He read them as an adult. He experienced other parts of the wizarding world, and now he's here continuing a discussion that we began last week that I am excited to continue. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm that grown man, and the guests are the same folks, the same wonderful human beings we had on our previous episode. Delia Gallegos, the creative director and chief financial officer of Black Girls Create and the co-host of The Nerds Are Typing, and Michael the Beautiful Harley, which was his answer for what title do you want? But you may have heard him across Harry Potter podcasts in the past, especially Potterless. So Delia and Michael, how's it going? Great. Happy to be here, especially in the presence of Michael the Beautiful. (laughs) Pretty fantastic. What a title. How'd you get that one? (laughs) I don't have my master's degree yet, so I can't be Michael the Beautiful Librarian. (laughs) And Michael, the beautiful paraprofessional event coordinator specialist, doesn't sound very good. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I mean, I say that I threw that out as my name, but Delia just reapplied her lip gloss for this episode. (laughs) I had to look good for all of Mike's listeners. (laughs) People can hear. They can hear if you don't look good through the audio. It comes through. Exactly. Yes, that's true. That's why you have so many listeners, because you're so good looking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely it. And definitely not the case anytime I post a picture of me on any sort of Potterless thing and people go, oh, that's what you look like? That's not what I had envisioned. And I don't know if I'm speaking on behalf of all podcasters, but at least for me, don't ever say that ever (laughs) because my brain, even though you don't mean it this way, I know what you're getting at. And I've had the same situation happen to me where I see a podcaster and I go, wow, I would have envisioned them differently based on their voice. Mm -hmm. It is natural. But what my brain does when you say you look different than I thought is my brain says, oh, you look incorrect. (laughs) You do not look the right way. So I know you mean well. It does hurt my feelings, and I can't explain it, but it makes me feel sad. So please stop commenting that on every Instagram post I have. You can still think it, just when you type it out, hit backspace a lot, and then don't hit send. (laughs) I have a perfect segue into our discussion today about that, because I have had the same thing happen, but I get the extra layer of, oh, you're a person of color. Oh, good. <laughs> Love it. Love that. What a lovely surprise. And I'm like, I mean, that's the best way you can take that, I suppose. You didn't have to. Yes, I know. I have excellent white voice. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was raised by two wonderful white people. I have white voice. But at the same time, when your favorite podcasters, like Mike said, maybe don't look exactly the way you thought, and especially if they are not exactly the color you thought they were, you don't have to tell them that. You don't have to tell them. Mm -hmm. It's like when you see... (laughs) 
a woman that is tall, you don't have to say, wow, you're tall. You can just <laughs> think it and then just not say it to them. I love when people tell me that I'm East Indian because I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, naturally, of course, we were talking about Harry Potter and specifically the shortcomings of <laughs> diversity and representation <laughs> in the books. And even more specifically, the intentional choices that J.K. Rowling made that are bad. And there are quite a few, I will say, our bullet points span three pages. So there's a lot to discuss. I do not know if we will get to it all, but we will do our best. I think the place to start would probably be what we alluded to discussing in the last episode, which first takes the shape of Lupin being a werewolf, being an allegory for having HIV. And this also gets into how, as we talked in last episode, JK just kind of brushes over all sorts of any muggle ailment existing and deciding the closest she'll get to that is this allegory. And then going beyond this, just everything she does around Dumbledore being gay but not being explicit and then having the chance to do it multiple times with future sequel slash prequel material and just not doing it again. Michael, you had the most notes added to these sections, so I will let you speak first because I would just guess that you're a bit passionate about these topics. What is surprise that the gay guy on this episode might have a few things to say about Dumbledore and Lupin. I think the thing to start off with on that discussion, we'll start with Lupin because he's a little more of a leftover of what we were discussing in the previous episode about attempted commentary that fell flat, attempted metaphors that fell flat. He's the gif of Bart Simpson throwing the you tried cake into the trash. (laughs) He got really close. And We talk about characters that we as readers of color relate to in fiction and how that can be difficult because we don't often get characters that we find relatable who aren't white. Their personality, their behavior, their actions in the story, we may find them super relatable, their moral views. Mm -hmm. Lupin was that for me. Lupin was that for me before I self-identified as gay. And I think in a way Lupin was a very helpful part of my journey into figuring out that I was gay because he was a sensitive, kind mentor who had a secret, and a secret that he was so worried would destroy his relationships with people. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, for many queer people, there's something in that character. And for me, there definitely was before I even fully understood that. Rowling took that to another level by confirming multiple times on the Pottermore and Wizarding World site that, yes, Lupin is a direct allegory for HIV and AIDS. Now, to be clear, Rowling is not the first person to do this. This was a big thing, actually, in the 80s with both film and books. Vampires had a really big moment in the 80s, and it's because of AIDS. (laughs) The idea that blood transference can cause some kind of incurable illness, vampires fit the bill as a metaphor for that. And werewolves also, we had werewolf movies, an American werewolf in London, I believe, was the big one from that era. Movie monsters and monsters from classic novels are often a metaphor for some kind of illness, disability. And so Rowling is, again, as we mentioned in the previous episode, she is pulling from tradition. She is not making this up just out of the blue. This is not 
completely on her shoulders. There are plenty of things that we will talk about that are completely on her shoulders, and this isn't one of them. But Lupin doesn't complicate this metaphor so much as his dark counterpart Fenrir Greyback does. Lupin presents overall a very sympathetic picture of an individual with an incurable illness. Greyback is exactly the opposite of that. Greyback muddies the metaphor. If you were to try and even equate it to the real world, it would literally be somebody who is going around intentionally spreading something like HIV or AIDS. That's insane. And that is where the metaphor breaks apart. I don't have the answer for how to fix it, because my answer isn't necessarily get rid of Fenrir Greyback, because I think his point in the story is to be that antithesis to Lupin, not only as a werewolf, but in moral behavior. And I'm not a writer. Delia is the writer, so maybe she can fix it. But I totally (laughs) gave Rowling the benefit of the doubt. And if you feel so inclined to go listen to the archive of my podcasts, all I can tell you is that I am on a penance walk that will never end for my involvement (laughs) in Harry Potter. And that I very much was a Harry Potter fan who, when presented with the opportunity to give Rowling an out for the longest time, as I think many of us wanted to do, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. I, there were a lot of easy ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Now I don't do that. So if you go listen to the archive, don't be surprised if the things I say contradict how I'm feeling about this stuff now. I think a lot of us, including the three of us here, even with our different experiences with Potter, have experienced quite a bit of growth with how we feel about these things. Growth is important. Yeah, for sure. It's why we're here. We love to see some growth. But Delia, how would you fix it? I want to know how you fix it. <laughs> or I guess even before we get to how to fix it, just what about it makes it not good? Is it just the fact that it exists or is there like an element in it done poorly where it's clear that this metaphor didn't hit part of the issue specifically with Finrir is not only is he like you know you have this stereotype and this idea that AIDS is the you know the gay disease so like it's a fraught metaphor to begin with to like really even approach like and again there's a history of this metaphor so like I can understand why J.K. Rowling used it, but she, again, we've talked about it. She never interrogated it and how she used it. But when you look at Fenrir specifically, not only is he purposefully targeting other wizards to try and, again, using the terms of the metaphor, like infect other people, he's targeting children. Like that's also a hugely problematic stereotype that homophobic people have about gay people and now in moving into 2021 about trans people like this is on an ongoing stereotype placed on the lgbtqia plus community is that they're a threat to children and that they're a danger and that they're targeting your children which is just obviously not true i mean there are creeps in all walks of life but that's not a problem inherent to any one community okay so the problem that exists with this is by making being a werewolf the allegory for having HIV, that is set. And then once you have evil version of werewolf that is intentionally doing it, then you have the bad look of, like you're saying, Delia, that the gays are going to try to hurt your kids and then mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And I think, and Michael, you can chime in here too. No, I, fix it. Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> the issue also becomes, I think, okay, well, okay, let's get into fixing it. <laughs> I think you can still, again, I personally, personally me as a writer, like that is a fraught metaphor. I would never. However, if you are trying to do it, I think the issue we run into is we are the examples of good, quote unquote, werewolves is only Lupin. So then once again, he looks like the exception. It mm. looks like the standard is like a Fenrir or maybe just a little less. We know he has a whole like, 
like pack and like it's alluded to like really disturbing things happen. And if your metaphor is for HIV AIDS, and we know the stereotypes surrounding HIV AIDS, if you the only good one is an exception, that's bad. So right, I would yeah. I would have loved if I could fix it. I would think it would have been great to see Lupin return with more because he goes undercover with the werewolves. I think it would have been great if he would have come back with other werewolves who are like part of the cause that are like, yo, screw this Van Rear guy. Like, I don't know what he's about, but I've just been trying to live my life. The laws aren't here to support me and I just want a better life for me, my people. Let's fight. Let's go. I still don't think it's great, but I think it would help ease the most problematic elements, I think, that are there. I think to jump on that, and this is a bit of a side tangent, but I did just have to say, it is kind of funny when you look at the efforts that the Order of the Phoenix go through from Order of the Phoenix through Deathly Hallows, where they like reach out to a lot of these dark creatures, i.e. werewolves, giants, acromantulas, and literally all of their efforts fail. Mm -hmm, And like, mm -hmm. not one from any of those groups is like, I'll come join you. They're all just like, no, we are all evil. Every single (laughs) one of us. We love evil. Evil is delicious. I guess Grop is like the only one who comes through, but that is about it. And it was because of Hagrid. Okay, that makes sense there. So I guess the next bigger one that I had brought up is one that is very obvious, very out in the open, because JK really made it a sticking point that this was an intentional choice and I promise I planned this the whole time is that Dumbledore is gay and he was written to be gay and I didn't say it explicitly in the books but here I am at this book signing or whatever the heck speech and I'm telling you all that it was 100% planned I've talked at length about why I think this is bad but I would love to hear from you Michael why this is bad I would also assume that part of it is not backing it up with the two future installments that came later of you've got the opportunity to make it explicit in Cursed Child, not there. You've got the opportunity to make it explicit in two Fantastic Beasts movies, and it's not in either of those. But from your perspective, why is this not a good one? Why did we put this in the bad bullet point list? I see J.K. Rowling riding a broomstick, putting her arms out, as she leans back going, you're welcome, gays. (laughs) 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 And that's kind of what it felt like. The interesting thing for me, why I really stress to your listeners why this is such an individual experience for each of us, just as much as we talked before that as an East Indian, as a Jew, I am not the monolith. I am not the one opinion for those groups. I am not the opinion for every gay person in this discussion either. And my experience coming out, my experience as a gay man has widely different variances from other individuals, especially during this time. And what it was for me was uh, Deathly Hallows was released in 2007, and she said this in 2007, I think at the Carnegie Hall event, right as it came out. Because somebody asked. Somebody asked her if Dumbledore ever had anybody that he was in love with, and she always thought of him as gay. And from my perspective, I believe that that's true. Did she believe it from the moment she wrote Dumbledore's name out for the first time? I don't know. I do believe that somewhere in the writing process that she did decide that actively. And I understand from a historical perspective why you could give her the out for why she didn't do more. Because Rowling is not the first, and she is not the last, who will queer code her character 
And there are so many resources that I will give you, Mike, to link your listeners to about queer coding. Yes, please. Don't worry, listeners. They're videos and they're easy and you can watch them on double speed and understand everything. (laughs) Um, But... Queer coding in its basic form is the idea that you are putting signals to the queer community because you know you can't outright say it. So you're going to put little hints in your media that uh, give a call out to the queer community. In film, it has, and I didn't mention to your listeners that I also have a degree in undergrad in film, so this is where this comes from. But film has this history somewhere around the 50s with the Hayes Code and the idea that essentially like there are certain things you can't say in film. But up to that point, films were trying to actually include marginalized and queer characters to some degree. There were moments of it that might surprise you if you look at historical film before the Hayes Code. So essentially, the Hayes Code in film is what ensured that this would be a thing from then on. And it's still a thing now. You can all probably recall, any of you Disney fans who are listening, because I know there's a lot of you out there, because you all cross with Harry Potter. Yep. (laughs) Basically, every live-action Disney movie that comes out these days, they're like, guess who's gay in it? There's a gay character. Oh my god, gays, we did it for you. Come, Please come see this movie. Disney did it for the culture. Yes. <laughs> yes, they fixed it. It's the foo. The, literally the fool. The worst <laughs> character that you could do this to, and he has one millisecond of screen time where it's implied. That is queer coding. Dumbledore is that. For the most part in the text, he is queer coding. And Rowling even said, I think at some point afterwards, that... Oh, if you look, you'll you'll see little hints here and there. She's talking about queer coding. People are going to think that I am the one who is being the stereotypical one. This isn't the case. This is what Rowling intended. Lines like Dumbledore being like, "Oh, I I do so love knitting patterns. Can I can I take this magazine?" Things like Dumbledore being a clothes horse and loving like fashion and loving colors His and flamboyantly cut. Yes. <laughs> yes. A flamboyantly cut purple suit. And as someone who owns four pairs of tailored pink pants, I will say that does not make me gay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, your clothes don't make you. No, nothing. It makes, makes Mike well-dressed. I did want to say <laughs> at the top you. when you were talking about like people commenting about how you look, I did want to come. I was like, but Mike is a snazzy dresser. I've seen mm-hmm. him in person. <laughs> He's a very snazzy dresser. <laughs> Thank you. The thing to point out about that too, is we have had since what 1997 we have had a le- evolution in how we treat males and females and everybody in between dresses an experiment in how we express our gender and our sexual fluidity that even in 2007 i think that is something to consider that often is easy to push out of this conversation is that 2007 it's hard to believe because in many of our minds it feels like yesterday but 2007 was different and in terms of gay representation especially in youth media It was very, very different. This was, in many ways, yes, groundbreaking. Because some readers, myself included, can go back to Deathly Hallows knowing that Rowling wants you to read Dumbledore is gay. I can see it. I can absolutely see it. And in my opinion, it makes the story much richer for it. Do I wish it was there more explicitly? Absolutely. I think Rowling did a thing that shook the world But she could have done even more, because by that point, Harry Potter was impenetrable. I think that, yes, there would have been a huge focus on it. There was when she announced it. And you mentioned, Elia, that piece with Fenrir, that piece about how 
think of the children. Mm-hmm. And that happened with Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. There were discussions there. You know, Dumbledore spends all of his time with Harry in a private office. And I was just like, oh my God, I cannot believe the fandom went to these discussions. I saw these comments on fan discussion boards and fan forums and fan responses to this. It was bad. Yes, it was so bad. I specifically remember that time when it was announced, I was irate. And I remember talking to my mom about it because that was what the narrative was. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, Dumbledore. And, you know, that was also, oh my gosh, Dumbledore's gay. And there were people excited about it. But so much of the narrative at the time was pretty vitriolic and like questioning, like from a moral standpoint, like Harry's alone with his office. And I just remember being so furious that that was the conversation because at the time I was very defensive of like Harry Potter and Rowling. And obviously my opinions has evolved and like we see her actions since then haven't really stacked up against that. But I can attest, I can distinctly remember that 2007 was a different time. Like not to say there weren't people fighting the good fight and there wasn't the conversation, like the queer representation I knew were like <laughs> by kids on like MySpace and stuff and other like forums of that time. And like those people who kind of got like semi-internet famous, like the first of their kind. But yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't a thing. Like it's hard to imagine to put yourself in the headspace. And it truly wasn't until you were talking about the conversation on the forums that I really just flashed back just right now to like, oh, right. I remember having that conversation. And yeah, it was different. And I can understand why it wasn't in the original books. But only that. Mm -hmm. Like, I think historically to throw this date out there because it's so, we humans take things so for granted so quickly. Mm -hmm. But the White House lit up in the U.S. with the pride colors in 2015. Mm -hmm. That was very recent. Mm -hmm. That was to celebrate the achievements in the gay rights movement that happened under the Obama administration. And it was unheard of. It was a landmark moment for gay rights. And that was very much post the Harry Potter series. Some of you listeners, too, might be thinking the one that comes to my mind as such a similar comparison is... um, the Avatar series sequel, The Legend of Korra, mm-hmm, there is mm-hmm. also this element at the end of it, and I won't spoil it because I don't know if all of you have seen it, but, and if you haven't, do. Mm-hmm. But um, there is an element of that as well. And for those of us in the know, we see it. And what we want is for it to, not to be a code, not to be a secret. It doesn't, it, because when it's treated like a secret code, it's also aligned with being like dirty and bad, right? Yeah, it's taboo. It yes. can't be a thing. And that's what my frustration always was is that, sure, I could understand back when she was writing the books, not putting it in for all of the hubbub that it would have caused. Mm-hmm. But it made me upset that in Cursed Child and in The Two Fantastic Beasts, there was no just casual conversation in which it was made perfectly clear. Just as simple as one person saying Dumbledore and Grindelwald dated Mm -hmm. or Dumbledore himself saying like, I loved Grindelwald. It was just anything where it was made apparent and not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would have been great and it just didn't happen. And that's where I think when I interpreted frustration with this, it was more of that, okay, you've established this, now make good on it in your future things, and she failed two multiple times. Plot-wise, you have Rita Skeeter's book. If she dropped in there that Dumbledore was in love with Grindelwald, Mm -hmm. oh man, like that would be such a beautiful place to drop that bomb. 
that would work so much stronger narratively. All she goes with is just like, well, they kind of maybe were friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or even have Dumbledore saying something more explicitly in the King's Cross scene. And again, I understand, you know, queer coding and the history there. But I even rereading it through the lens, like a modern lens and knowing what we know now, even the queer coding, I feel like personally, as someone who's not gay, admittedly, I feel like it still could have been stronger. Of course, part of that is hindsight and seeing that she never intended to really make good on it. So I can read into it a lack of effort that mm-hmm. maybe I probably wouldn't have seen in earlier years. Right. So there is that. I would also inevitably feel like, yes, there should have been a discussion about it in King's Cross. And that's where I can see it most strongly. Dumbledore gets so close to just saying that. He kind of just tiptoes around it. Mm -hmm. And when you know it, you see him tiptoeing around it. But if you link that up with this lost piece of Rita Skeeter and Harry's feelings of betrayal and how little he realizes he felt he knew Dumbledore and then suddenly realizing in King's Cross, oh, Dumbledore is human, he is fallible, he loved and he lost, and that is beautifully tragic, and that is what gave him the power to understand deep love, because he had it. Mm -hmm. It's weird that that is not included because that's the theme of the book. And she moves it to, well, Dumbledore had a very parental affection for Harry, and that was his love. And that works, that's fine, that works fine. Mm -hmm. But for Dumbledore to also strengthen that concept by saying, I also loved, and it caused me to do a very terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And it caused me to lose really important people in my life. Yes, I think the story would be so much stronger for it if it was there. Where that leads into is, of course, the trail that we get from this to Crimes of Grindelwald, It's a long trail, and you all know it for the most part, so I won't go into it in like minute detail. But the base part of the trail is that Rowling has a fraught relationship with the queer community. She really wants the queer community to like her, especially the L's and the G's. I was going to say, there's one letter she's not a fan of. I was about to say specifically. (laughs) In this timeline, somebody asks her on Twitter, hey, are there like queer kids at Hogwarts? And she's like, hell yeah. And she posts about it. She posts that meme about like, if Harry Potter taught us something, it's that nobody should ever like live in a closet. And I think like that is one of those moments where ev- the readers are just like, give her all the cookies. Yay. <laughs> so well, cookies for rolling. And in theory, yeah, that should be great. But at that same time, people are wondering as Cursed Child and Fantastic Beasts are looming on the horizon. Great. She's acknowledged this. Like she knows we want this. What more is she going to do now that we're post-2015 and gay people can get married and we live in a much better society for this. Well, she goes on this very weird journey from 2007 to 2010 to 2019. First, she says that she always thought Dumbledore was gay in 2007 and she doesn't really talk about the relationship between him and Grindelwald. Then in 2008, she says that Dumbledore was celibate and turned to books because he fell in love with Grindelwald and that was bad and he could never love again. As you which, do. That's a trope, by the way. That's a huge trope in the gay community of older gays who just are like, I had my one love and I never loved again <laughs> and I didn't deserve love. And then in 2010, and this was the hardest one to find, but I found it. She did say in an interview with Melissa and Ellie that she believed that Dumbledore's infatuation with Grindelwald was one-sided. 
and that Grindelwald was basically a sociopath who recognized that Dumbledore had feelings for him and completely took advantage of him, but did not truly have feelings for him in return and was using him. And Such an interesting story that could have been told. Yes, and to me, that... Oh, God... By 2010, apparently, I was like, I am satisfied with this. Please don't say anymore. Because I liked that. Yeah. That was enough. That was enough. Please don't add anymore. So then 2019 rolls along. They got nasty. The internal screaming that I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. We've inserted, for some reason, some of us have bought The Crimes of Grindelwald on Blu-ray, and we have inserted it to watch what will surely be some very enlightening and thrilling special features. Maybe they'll explain what was even happening in the movie, because I did not understand it. And (laughs) we get rolling, saying that Grindelwald and Dumbledore, they were doing it. (laughs) Hot gay sex and oh my god, you just you wait, just you wait for these sequels. It's gonna get hot and heavy in here. And everybody's just like, oh mm-hmm. okay. okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's the journey. In between all of this, and I think we can speak a little more to I throw it more to Delia as well to speak definitely to Wolfstar, but I will throw out there that in between this, a little asterisk. Scorpius and Albus exist in Cursed Child, and they are another case of queer coding, but I think they actually cross into queer baiting, which is where you know what you're doing. You intentionally know that you want to get your gay audience in those seats because they're going to give you a lot of money, and I did it! I paid for those seats! Not because I wanted to see the play, but because I wanted to be able to talk about it accurately without people saying, well, you didn't see it. So you don't get it. There is that commentary where it's like, well, if you only read it, you didn't really get the mm-hmm. I've read yeah. and seen and, <laughs> and no. <laughs> and we could go on for a whole episode about how, yes, by the way, that's racist too. The elitism of Broadway is racist. Yes. <laughs> so, Michael, you brought up Wolfstar, which I think is one that is very interesting. I do think the Scorpius and Albus situation kind of stems from this. And Delia, I'm excited for you to educate the listeners more about this because this was news to me. Obviously, I knew Wolfstar, which is the pairing for serious and lupin i knew there's a whole bunch of fanfics about it but what i didn't realize is that jk actively shut it down which i think is very strange to do especially because i saw very recently on twitter rick reardon the author of the percy jackson series he quote tweeted a tweet where someone said and i don't remember the name of the characters thankfully especially because i'm going to be doing a percy jackson pod where the whole shtick is that i haven't read them before (laughs) but this person wrote to rick and said hey did you ever envision these two characters getting together i always envision them having feelings for each other and rick quote tweeted it and basically said you know i never thought of that but if you interpreted that then you're correct because interpretation lies in the hands of the reader and i wrote it this way but if you envisioned it another way Totally fine. J.K. Rowling does not have this opinion at all and went so far so as to really make it clear that you should not put these two together. It is not okay. Lupin's super straight and that's it. (laughs) So, Delia, if you could talk about the shutting down of Wolfstar and also I think that does tie into the queer rating that Michael is talking about because 
when you keep just kind of leading folks on and you never have anything that is explicit at all, even like the Star Wars thing where two people kiss in the background of the one movie, there's just absolutely nothing. People keep hoping and wanting stuff and looking for it in places such as Scorpius and Albus, which it might not even be there, but just when there's nothing, you just keep wanting it. Absolutely. So this is going to take the listeners down a bit of fandom history. And like my dates aren't going to be all the way there. I do encourage you to research it, go on fan lore, do the thing. And again, this is a lot more like speculation. Like J.K. Rowling's never come out and explicitly said down with Wolfstar, like, Mm. which probably is for the best because there would have been riots in the street (laughs) if she had done it so explicitly. However, again, I don't know how many people read as the books were coming out, but a lot of people will know of what is pejoratively called the long summer. And that is the long amount of time between book four and book five, which was called the long summer. It allowed fan theories to kind of like bloom. A lot of people were really closely analyzing this text probably for the first time because before it was reading it back to back. Also, you're coming into like more heavier themes and, you know, the audience has matured. So I think for the first time, you're seeing a lot of like intense, close reads of these books. And what becomes really popular at this time is the idea of Wolfstar. And for those who don't know, Wolfstar is the idea of the pairing of Sirius Black and Remus Lupin. And you see the split off in two ways. There are a lot of people who are writing, you know, fan fiction of like the Marauders era. There's some who are writing fan fiction once book five comes out during this time of like when Lupin and Sirius are in Grimmauld Place together, just kind of chilling out, being extras, I guess. I don't know. Gay dads. They're being (laughs) gay gay dads. dads. Absolutely. (laughs) It gains a fervor of its own. And people are like, there are whole big long metas, metas being like, you know, like critical analysis of the story that aren't fictional about like analyzing like points in the text that really point to like, even if like whether or not she can explicitly say it in a kid's book, like she intends them to be gay. Like there's just no other way around it. Like the fandom gets pretty loud about this and it's got uh, it's got a lot of people talking. And then book five comes out and, you know, RIP serious, pour one out. But people are still like, okay, that really sucks. But that doesn't mean they weren't gay. Like all of that's still there. And then more in book five, we get so much more. And I don't think she ever explicitly answers the question. But then in book six, we see... Remus and Tonks out of nowhere, and it's really poorly done. It comes out of left field, really kind of like squanders Tonks characterization. That's a different podcast. And it's just kind of a hot mess. And it comes out of nowhere. And people are rightfully upset about this. And even still, because again, how the fandom loves to give J.K. Rowling the benefit of the doubt until we can't anymore, and everybody's last straw is different. People are like, okay, 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 okay. But that doesn't mean Lupin wasn't in love with Sirius. Like, you can be bi. You can be pan. Wait, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, This is fine. However, since then, in various interviews, usually in line with uh, HIV, AIDS, lycanthropy interviews, Rowling has said explicitly, it feels like it's a response with her knowledge of what the fandom is saying, has explicitly said, no, Remus Lupin has only ever loved Tonks. He never loved anybody before falling in love with Nymphadora Tonks, which, pardon? Like, first of all, he's a grown man who we haven't seen. We He's been off page for so long. He was just by himself the whole time. Like, the serious of it all aside, like, mm odd choice uh, to say like what is with this you can only be in love once thing that she loves to perpetuate Mm. but second of all kind of like mike was saying like you know like again it just is so pointed that you know that she has to be aware of what she's responding to as far as the fandom and their fervor about wolf star and 
everything she's written into the books. Now, I'm not saying that that's intentional. I personally truly cannot say whether or not she truly intended for Sirius and Lupin to be gay. I don't know if it was queer baiting, but it is very clear. And sometimes as a writer, that happens. Your characters take on a life of their own and that's okay. And it's okay to have not intended something. But like Mike was saying with um, Rick, you can just say, if you read that, that's great. I love that you took that away from my writing. Instead, she has gone out of her way to A, kill off Sirius. And again, I'm not saying that she did that purely because of Full Star, but she kills off Sirius and then puts Remus with Tonks for really no reason. It doesn't really serve the purpose except to give the plot an orphan because she likes a nice clean cycle. <laughs> Which she didn't intend to do initially. Lupin and Tonks were supposed to live and Arthur Weasley was supposed to die. Oh, I did not know that. And then she was like, I love an orphan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she loves an orphan. Yep. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm so bitter. The longer this, our discussion goes, the more bitterness comes out. I wonder um, why. And then to like double down over and over again, saying that he's only ever loved one person and never before. Again, it's the fact that she stresses that she he's never loved anyone before Tonks. It, mm-hmm. That It's the before for me. Right. So it really does seem that she's actively shut down Wolfstar. And I don't know why, except the fact that she's not really here for the cause. So It just feels like it's going over the top. And it's just a, you don't have to do this. You didn't have to go this far. Why couldn't there be some interpretation where it's not just everything is straight and traditional and by the books, blah, 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 blah. I just don't understand why she has to go that far. Hey, past Mike, let me stop you there just for a second. Hello, everyone. It's me, Editing Mike. Before we continue this discussion, we need to take a little bit of a break for Wingardium Eridosa. Today's episode of Potterless is brought to you by the Potterless Patreon account. Ho ho! Wanted to take an ad slot here just to talk about what's going to happen with the Patreon because, as you may have heard, in September we will start the Percy Jackson show and Potterless will no longer be posting weekly episodes, but we are going to keep the Patreon intact even though the Percy Jackson show will be on a separate feed. So the Potterless podcast feed will remain as it is and I'll be posting things sporadically, live shows, things from leaky cons and other conventions, etc. The Percy Jackson podcast will exist on its own feed, so you'll have to subscribe to that if you want to hear those episodes. And the Patreon is going to transition. It's going to still be the same Patreon account, but we will be changing it from Potterless to The Percy Jackson Show. That will take place in September. The fourth Monday in August will be the last time that the patrons are charged. You have about a week and a half or so until that first Monday in September kicks in, and then at that point, the Patreon will switch. There will be new tiers. It'll be a monthly Patreon as opposed to the charge per episode format that we currently have, but all of the Potterless stuff will stay intact. So if you want to listen to all of the Potterless things that existed, they will still be there. And there will be a separate portion of the Patreon if you just want access to the Potterless stuff and you're not interested in necessarily supporting the Percy Jackson venture. There will be a separate tier where you just get access to all of the Potterless bonus content from the past. So that will all live at patreon.com slash Potterless. And now you'll hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that aren't are inserted locally. So if you live internationally, don't be surprised if you hear an ad in your country native language. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of Potterless. 
This episode of Potter List is brought to you by Arena Club. Now, if you listen to this podcast, it should be no secret that I am both a sports nerd and more of a traditional nerd. And when you think of these two types of nerddom, there's one thing that links them together, and that is card collecting. Whether you are looking to buy, trade, sell, or display a card collection of sports cards or Pokemon cards, you should check out Arena Club. ArenaClub.com is the place where you can do all of these things. I have recently made a purchase on the marketplace. I got Lieutenant Surge's Raichu, which is my favorite Pokemon, and I didn't even know that there was a Lieutenant Surge version of the Raichu. So that is a card that I now have, and it's not just some digital thing. I can have this card physically mailed to me. So there's a bunch of cool stuff you can do with Arena Club, including their slab packs. If you have ever done any sort of card collecting, you know that ripping packs or repacks can be a zero transparency type of thing where you're just hoping you get some sort of cool card. But what's nice about the slab packs with Arena Club is that you have full transparency. You see what available cards are there, what your percentage of getting them is, what the gradings are, so it is not a complete black box. You're going into this knowing what cards you might get. And I've been using Arena Club, and it's pretty cool. It's very easy for me to look up different cards. I can favorite them, see what I want, and then whenever I want them shipped to me, I can get them shipped to me, and then I'll have the physical versions of them. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash Wow, that is a wild offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack is slash right there. Wow. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash potterless for 10% off your first purchase. So if you collect some cards off a $400 slab pack in a more transparent way, whether you're a sports nerd or Pokemon nerd or all sorts of nerds like me, you can use Arena Club today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's another one that I want to talk about. It's it's different, and I think this one is more of the shape of there was even something good put on her plate. I feel like Wolfstar is something where something was presented in front of her and maybe intentionally or not, she shut it down. This is something that was placed in front of her on a silver platter and she just kicked the silver platter to the ground. <laughs> and it was when they were doing Cursed Child and whoever was in charge of this decision making, I don't know if it was JK, I don't know enough about the theater world, but the decision is made that in the original cast and I believe in every casting since, Hermione is going to be played by a black woman. And when JK is asked about this, rather than her talk about growth or talk about the fact that don't have to lock characters into their original descriptions. She tries to act like she's left Hermione intentionally vague the whole time. (laughs) And I have fallen for this and I have 
defended this on the podcast, and it wasn't until people pointed out the panda text example mm-hmm. that I changed my thinking. Because there's another part in the book where it says Hermione looking white in the face or something, and I always interpreted that just as an expression. I don't think right. you have to be white to be white in the face. Yes. To me, that expression always just meant loss of color in your face or blushing, that kind of thing. But then there's something where she's beat up and it says she looks like a panda. That would very much imply light skin. And even if JK didn't do the illustrations or any other artistic representation or the casting of the movies, Hermione's white in just every iteration of everything that exists until this play. Mm -hmm. And rather than her try to not make a big deal of it, like when Spider-Man just says, yeah, MJ's black now, who cares? She instead tries to take a lap, a victory lap, and say, look at me, she's been vague the whole time, and you're bad. Like, the thing is, there were still people. The people who said Hermione has to be white, yes, they are wrong. J.K. Rowling is right to call these people out. But to act like this was this grand scheme that she's known from day one is just getting back to how she just never shows growth. And it's hard for us to ever like think that she's learned because she always tries to act like she's been perfect from day one. And he, uh, her arms I, are uh, out uh, on the broomstick. Okay. You're she's welcome leaning. black people. You're welcome black people. <laughs> so is there anything else to discuss here? Uh, like it's just, uh. absolutely. I think, that was such a frustrating time that like, you know, on the one hand, as a black person, you're like, yes, like I was beside myself with excitement when they announced that Hermione was going to be explicitly cast as a black woman in Cursed Child for everything Cursed Child was, which also that's saying something that Cursed Child is where we had to get the representation. But let's not, I digress. (laughs) You know, the default is she can try and take credit. Like I intentionally left it vague. Like whether or not she did, I don't think she did, but whether or not she did, nowadays we are very aware that representation matters and you need to explicitly race your characters if they are a person of color. And if they're white, like just make that the standard, like say what the character is. And you know, maybe if you don't have an opinion, that's fine. Uh, I'm not going to speak to that. That's a writing podcast, I guess. But But also, how great would it have been if she just said what you just said, which is representation is important. It's something I failed to do well in the books and the movies. So in this casting, we are having Hermione be a black woman. Wouldn't that have been so much easier? Is that so hard? Is this so hard? It would have been easier. And also, I think it would have imbued a lot of trust with her fandom, because I think something that gets missed in this discussion when we're talking about black Hermione is that she's patting herself on the back for seeming so clever. And she's so smart when... For years prior to artists, fan fiction writers, fan artists specifically, fan fiction writers, um, and just readers in general have been imagining and discussing Hermione as a Black character. Like, I also imagined her as white because, you know, the default in our society is white, etc., unpacking all that, etc. But I've been on panels where we've talked about representation or even specifically just like Black characters and Black witches in the story. And we've asked the question to the audience, like how many, I asked it, I remember specifically, like how many of you guys imagined Hermione as a white person and some hands went up. But there are a lot of people, even when they read the books for the first time, imagine Hermione as a Black woman because they themselves could relate to her character. And I feel like by taking a victory lap and patting herself on the Black, takes away the power and agency from those fans who are the ones who built that narrative. That narrative and that idea would not exist without them. So really, in turn, she is speaking over all the Black fans that did the work for her to present her with that idea and potentially the casting director. I don't know who cast the show. I don't know. It could have been an organic idea, but she's taking the victory lap because she's seen what fans have done and it's like, yes, 
black people, like Michael said. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I've given you what you want. I think it was a slip of the tongue, but I believe you said patting herself on the black, which I think is perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect Freudian slip. <laughs> I'm going to keep it. She's patting herself on the black. So. <laughs> there was a movement recently in uh, young adult fiction um, that was taken up by publishers. It was called Hashtag Own Voices. And it was the idea that stories about marginalized people and marginalized voices should be coming from marginalized authors. It should be authored by them, not by others. And if it is authored by others, they should be using sensitivity writers. They should be collaborating with other authors 100%. to write those characters, to include them in the correct way. Mm-hmm. Cursed Child isn't that. And in theory, yes, it's lovely. Hermione is Black. So... So what? What does that do for the story? What does that do for Hermione in Cursed Child? Nothing. Hermione's role in Cursed Child is to just strengthen your belief that she should be with Ron because we're making up for that oopsies when Rowling said that they had to go to therapy. That's literally what their role is in Cursed Child. So no, this isn't an achievement in any way because it doesn't really, like Delia said, it doesn't acknowledge what came before with the work that was done by the fandom for Hermione. They were the voices. They were the own voices, the hashtag own voices that did that work. And they explored why Hermione could be read Black. We had, and I'm going to reference in a specific episode of one of the podcasts I was on, Alohomora, because I have to, it was episode 242, and I have to give a shout out to the very young guest. She was in her teens, I think, at the time. Her name was Kulsum. She was a wonderful guest. Hello, Kulsum, if you're listening, I'm going to make you listen to this. <laughs> but she is an individual of color who discussed with us on that episode about why she read Harry as East Indian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard this interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. And that's a very popular read online. That's a very popular read in Tumblr circles. And she talked about how the way that Aunt Marge talks about Harry's family, when she very much talks about, like, and Kulsum, I believe, also lives in the UK and actually kind of could speak to UK dynamics about white individuals versus individuals of color there and this power dynamic between the two. And Delia, please, you know, enlighten me more, but I know that the things that I've heard about reading Hermione's Black is that she comes into a new unknown space and she's determined to prove herself, to make a mark for herself, to not be lost Mm -hmm. in the crowd because she knows that she has a disadvantage and she's not going to let that get her down. Mm -hmm. She's going to raise her hand every moment. She's going to be there to answer every question. She's going to know it all off the bat because she knows the societal disadvantage that she is at. Yeah, absolutely. When you read Hermione as Black, it really just gives so much more depth and life to her character that, I mean, not to say Hermione's poorly written, there are some problematic elements like there is with J.K. Rowling's writing in general, but (laughs) it breathes even that much more life into her character that, like Michael said, it's exactly that. She knows she's coming at a disadvantage. There is a feeling when you're a black person, but especially a black girl growing up, heading into unknown spaces, just knowing you have to prove yourself. Like there's a saying in the black community, like to get anywhere, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far as a white person. So like, if you read it that way, her know-it-allness, quote quote, unquote, and her being like bossy and all that stuff really makes sense. And then on top of that, it adds the nuance that can be kind of missing from reading the pure blood versus muggle-born versus half-blood, all of that dynamic 
um, that is kind of missing in a modern read, it can kind of add depth to that as well. So it's really interesting. And it's a lot of work that the fandom has already been doing. Even Black Girls Great, go check out Hogwarts and Black Student Union. But yeah, it is speaking over that and over the own voices that have done the work. Right. And then even in Cursed Child, it's not like Hermione plays a pivotal role at all. She's Mm -hmm. just kind of there. And I guess she does become the Minister of Magic, but like she she doesn't feel like a key portion of the plot. It's still people who are white. Well, the important thing to note about that, then, like what I was talking about with the Own Voices movement in young adult fiction, the second part of that is that very recently, literally, I think two weeks ago, one of the major publishers, can't recall off the top of my head, said, we're not going to use that anymore. And here is our explanation for why. It is because by using hashtag own voices, we have sectioned off the marginalized communities into their own genre, and rather than do the work to incorporate them into the genres of sci-fi, romance, fantasy, all of our other beautiful genres in young adult fiction, we have just sectioned them off into hashtag own voices, and that was a lazy solution to the problem. In my view, it was a step in resolving the issue. And now we are ready to take the next step. The next step is that now we have enough works that we can finally do that proper integration into multiple genres. And what Cursed Child's proper next step was, what they did was they hashtag own voiced Hermione. They put her in a cul-de-sac of like, she's the black one in the play. Mm -hmm. She is the the character of color in the play. Why can't the other characters be characters of color? You are putting a lot of disrespect on Ponju. Oh, who, right. Uh, Promacosla <laughs> has talked at length uh, on Potter about how that's just unseen a Ponju. nonsensical name that means nothing. And yeah, he also, again, does not contribute very much. But no. he's there. I did a video on YouTube about my reaction to Cursed Child because all, all of our listeners were like, oh my God, Michael, we, we're dying to know. What did you think? And I was like, I, it's exactly what I told you. It's It's trash. It's beautiful trash. (laughs) And that piece came to my mind when I was watching the show. I was like, why can't an Asian person play Harry? Why can't uh, an East Indian person play any of these other characters? Their ethnicity, their race contributes nothing to their roles in the story. It is irrelevant. You could literally cast it the way the Disney cast the 97 Brandy Cinderella, and it wouldn't make a difference. People are okay with that. People very quickly accept that suspension of disbelief. You eventually stop questioning it. That's why rare media like that was so successful. And it can be done. And it's being done more and more today. Like Bridgerton, they don't make a big deal about the fact that some of the well-to-do people are black. They just are, and they're there, and it's okay. Hamilton, everybody cast is not white, even though they're playing white people. To be fair, all of those things also, on the flip side, do bring up issues about, oh, okay, are we being colorblind now? Are we Hmm, just saying that we're not going to talk about the issues that stem from casting people in these roles as people of color and what inherently their histories would be. But there is also an element of people of color have not gotten to play in these spaces burden-free. And so we take the burden off and immediately all the white people are like, but I just don't see why they have to be people of color. (laughs) That's how white people talk, right, Mike? Yes, that is how we (laughs) we talk. Yeah, I was going to make that exact point that there is also the problem of like colorblind casting and the issue of like Hermione's black, but now what does that mean as Minister of Magic? Like that would add a whole level of nuance to her 
her life and her day to day. And yes, while the story's not explicitly about that, like there's no way that she interacts with the story, interacts with those around her that would indicate to the audience, especially to a black audience, that like she has lived a black experience. It's really just a white character that's been given black skin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you don't have to like interrogate everything. Like, I'm not saying that. I don't think we're saying that. But I just think that like that is a thought when you're talking about like, ooh, yay, victory, black Hermione. And it's like kind of, I guess, like it's the bare minimum. Right. I guess also if you are going to go, and this stems to the initial problem we've identified with what J.K. Rowling did here with patting herself on the back, if you are going to frame this as this great thing that I've done and I've planned the whole time, then you would think that you would do, like you're saying, Delia, make it actually matter in the plot, make Mm -hmm. it actually have a difference in the story. When there is no change at all, I don't think you really get to celebrate this because it feels like you wrote the story and then someone in charge of casting said, hey, what if she was black? And you just said, okay. If really you did keep her vague the whole time and you wanted to be a part of this and you wanted this difference in the story to say, look, Hermione, this beloved character who's been traditionally white in everything, we're going to make her black in this play. You would hope that she would actually make the conscious choice to make that part of the play, but it's not. Thank you for pointing out the colorblindness aspect of it, because I think that's what it shakes down to. And you don't get to pat yourself on the you don't get to I almost said it. You You don't get to pat yourself on the back for colorblind casting because you're not making it a part of the story. It's not an element in the story. So by bringing up the example of 97 Cinderella for, and for those of you who haven't seen it, it's on Disney plus. So please do enjoy. (laughs) But if you look into the behind the scenes of that, there's so much, and you can, if you're a person of color watching it, you can see it. There is intent. There is so much intent in that telling of Cinderella Mm -hmm. that is not in previous versions of that same exact television adaptation. That was the third adaptation on television of that production. And all the previous casts had been all white. For those of us in marginalized communities who go to see these things, we see it. We see when there is intent. We see when there is a genuine effort. Cursed Child, I think if there's any intent, it's unfortunately the stuff with Scorpius and Albus, and it's queer-baiting intent. It Mm -hmm. is an intent to say, well, we put it here for you to notice, and because we tempted you with it to get your butt in the seat, you paid the money, too late, now you're stuck here for this 500-hour play, (laughs) <laughs> you're not going to be like, you're not going to see anything come of this. Mm-hmm. So the final thing we're going to touch on here, of course, we are leaving some stuff on the table, including Ariana and some other parts of the story where she just implies some touchy subjects and then leaves all of the burden on the reader to interpret it and doesn't say anything, which I don't feel like is the right solution for a kid's book. So <laughs> I don't think we'll have time to get into that one, but there is one. And yes, it is outside of the main books, But she put a lot of effort into it and wrote it herself, so I think it still warrants a discussion. And that is all of the magical schools that are not in the main series, especially the Isle for Morny thing, which I did not read, but I've heard nothing but bad things about. (laughs) I was going to cover it on the podcast. I thought, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then a lot of people said, oh, no, it's just kind of, it just pretends Native Americans didn't exist. It covers it really badly, etc. And then I know that for some of these other magical schools, they They have fancy sounding names, but also kind of fall flat because Castle Bruxo is like if you tried to put Magic Castle into Google Translate and you say Portuguese, that's basically how you get that. Mahutokoro and Castle Bruxo were both victims of that. Like the Portuguese and Japanese speaking people are like, 
She just tried to say wizard school. But not even well. Like, she did it badly. She didn't even recognize the proper syntax of our languages to do it. And people from those communities were reminding the Harry Potter community at large, hey, Hogwarts doesn't literally mean anything. It's a fun nonsense name. Mm -hmm. It's a name, like a proper fun name. Why did we all get wizard school? (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, Deli, I know you have a lot of notes on this, and also you are part Cherokee, so I feel like this is in your wheelhouse. What's up with all of this stuff? So, okay, before we get to Ilvermorny, though, I just want to touch on Wagadoo real quick, um, because there's a point that I think a lot of people don't realize in the details of Wagadoo. Um, it said that, first of all, just one school for Africa, the yeah. entire continent. Oh Wait, okay. Africa's just one country, right? Yeah. Oh, oh right. Uh, I guess it is just one country. I yeah, forgot when I do we're the living Sporkle in rolling quiz, I just say Africa, and that's it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> got it, got it. That's my bad. Okay, well, then that's fine. Yeah. One school for the entire country of Africa. <laughs> Please don't clip that out of context. One, yeah. <laughs> one school for the continent of Africa, which is already yikes. Do you know how many different cultures are in Africa? It's Okay, and languages. Anyway, let's not. But that also holds true to how she wrote the Africa section of Quidditch throughout the ages. Yes. Africa gets a paragraph. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The whole continent gets a couple sentences where everything's just the same. But continue. (laughs) I'm not surprised. Right. No, it's not surprising. It's a very British colonial take to begin with. When you follow it up with thinking about, I think the important thing is to remember, we're talking about this based off of what she presented in Goblet of Fire, which is there are multiple European wizard schools and they cater to different language speakers. Mm -hmm. And so... You have like a large continent that has multiple schools and then Africa gets Wagadu. Gets the one. Gets the one. But to the British colonialism of it all, what I really just wanted to touch on that I don't think people kind of realize who aren't reading it from this like similar background. And I'm not African. Like African is different from African-American. So like, you know, there are plenty of African fans who have spoken on this in more depth and stuff. So definitely go check them out, find them. However, African wizards... Again, broad because she painted it. Rod are said to use wandless magic, which is also said to be more powerful than magic with a wand. However, the Europeans introduced the wand, and now the wand is a standard, which kind of speaks to taking away people's culture, especially when it's perceived as dangerous and a threat to the Eurocentric white culture of it all, and overpowering that and making that the standard. So that is yikes. I didn't even know she did that. There's definitely also a subtext there of the wand is more civilized and refined because it's European. It is a gentleman's tool versus the The wild magic of of wandless magic. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's civilized. We've, we've evolved past wandless magic. Yes, Yes. that is exactly. (laughs) That's so bad. God, that's so bad. It's real bad. (laughs) It's It's real bad, bad. (laughs) but it is fun. Like from a fan fiction-y sort of point of view to like try and write around that and being like, Actually, that's just what you think because you're European. The African <laughs> school is not going to tell you. Kind of like a Wakanda situation. Like, you don't know what's going on at Wagadu. But anyway, <laughs> so moving on to Silver Morning, I just want to touch on that real quick because I know that gets missed a lot. I just want to preface this, like, especially because I know there might be other, like, native listeners. Like, I am Cherokee, but I'm only part Cherokee. And also, I didn't grow up on the reservation. Like, I'm a Cherokee Nation citizen, but, like, my grandma moved off the reservation a long time ago. And that's that on that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we don't have time. However, Ilvermorny is presented as... So, the story... I know Mike hasn't read Magic in North America. It's fine. Don't. Um, (laughs) But... (laughs) 
<laughs> the whole basis, and I can I've only read it the once, so I like uh, apologies if my memory is rough. I'll fill in any gaps. I remember it all. Okay. I remember oh, no. it all like it was oh, yesterday. The burden of your memory. <laughs> I hate myself. So essentially, the idea is that you know Native American people, the many different tribes. Not that those are all addressed, but the many different tribes have their own magic systems. Like they have magic inherently, because that seems to be the lore. Is that People just inherently have magic or don't. We don't know the DNA, the genetics, rather. Um, and the Europeans come over, the English specifically, I think. It, let's call them out. The English <laughs> come over and kind of are like, yo, we do magic too. And we were persecuted over here. Let's like trade magic secrets in magical ways. And then they're like, you know what would be a great idea? The English are like, let's start a school and build it around native concepts, but we're going to make it a very European school and it's going to be a boarding school and all of the wizarding kind in America, all of them to include the indigenous people are going to come to our school and we're all going to exist in harmony in our European school. I think the big part too to put in there is that Ilvermorny ends up being essentially a poor man's Hogwarts. It yes. is created by a young woman named Isolde Sayer, who is an immigrant from, I think, Scotland. No, Ireland. She's based potentially on a real person, but she forms a person who faked their name, I guess, on one of the ships coming over. Her story is completely white-centric. By her point in the story, when she's creating Ilvermorny, she has no encounter with native peoples. Mm -hmm. Rowling is appropriating and very poorly adapting very from poorly. Native American, various Native American nations' lores, mishmashing them together in ways that mm -hmm. she did not have permission to do, nor did not ask anybody about. As much as she talked to not a single Native person. No. I think the most important thing for me with that is that Isolt's story is a separate section from two sections where Rowling talks about Native Americans, and they don't bleed into each other at all. Like, she talks about the Native Americans broadly, and then she just cuts them off from the narrative and she goes to Isolt. Native Americans have no direct involvement with the development of the school in their country. And what's wild, so this is the problem with it. So that's the groundwork for those who haven't read it, you don't need to. Essentially, by accident, even though she didn't talk to any Native people, it's actually a pretty realistic representation to what actually happened to Native people in America. You know, you would want a positive, realistic representation, but it's not because boarding schools for Native American people across the country have a very negative connotation because Native children were taken from their tribes to be civilized and to forcefully assimilate them, this is all air quotes, assimilate them into quote-unquote European culture. Which is odd considering the Europeans came here, but I digress. And these schools really uh, villainize and demonize Native culture. They make them hate their own culture and also were just wildly unsafe. Like, I think recently there was a story like about like hundreds of corpses, not to get dark. Yeah, in First Nations Canada. Yeah, yeah at an old school like this in Canada. These schools existed like from the, like the late 19th century um, to the early 20th century. So they weren't like, I don't know, like I know my family members went to a school that formerly was like this, but most of them had closed by the time they went but like definitely my ancestors did and they were just basically turned quote unquote european into european standards they were forced to dress in european clothes they were forced to and i'm saying european because this didn't only happen in america like mm. it happened across north america by 
various European cultures. But yeah, they were forced to dress like Europeans, speak English, and kind of like reject anything that had to do with their own culture. And often they would not return home because like the mind washing worked. And not always, but sometimes it did. And it's a very like a dark part of Native history and like stuff that like we still deal with today, like lots of food I grew up eating, things we ended we I grew up doing that I didn't even realize was Cherokee heritage because like it wasn't even passed down in that way. It was like in order to protect their kids and like as the generations go on, it's like we don't want to call this what it is. We don't want to call it like our Cherokee traditions. We're going to just do them because that's how culture works and that's what we do. But we're trying to protect you and make you as English or as American as possible so that you can move through society safely. So for the fact that she essentially uh, wrote that America had one European boarding school for all the magical native kids to attend is actually weirdly and scarily accurate, unfortunately, especially also the appropriation of like various um, mythical beasts within various, again, not from any one tribe, but various Native American lore is also something that happens a lot in America and a lot of places in America. You'll find stuff that is named after. I obviously know about Cherokee culture, but like I just went to Tennessee re- recently and all over Knoxville, Tennessee, a big thing is to like name things after like the Cherokee tribe and Sequoia and all this other stuff, Arrowhead and all this stuff. But it's more just for the like back in the day, it's for the appeal of it. Cherokee don't have any history there. It's just named that just for fun. And that's also pretty accurate. So she accidentally did well with that, but in a bad way, if that makes sense. Not in a way, to be clear, she is not trying to provide any sort of commentary of this is a bad thing that happened to the natives. No. It is just the way she wrote it was talk vaguely about Native Americans. Now these white people are going to come in and make a school and now it's okay because now we have magic school and there's actually no problems with it as opposed to her saying this happened and there are problems with it. Basically, she's so British that she accidentally did colonialism again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it's fictional this time. It's it's fictional magical this time. (laughs) And I think if your listeners want to explore kind of some of the more like public pieces about that that were written about in response to it. One of my favorite contributions was a blog by Dr. Adrienne Keene. Mm-hmm. She has a blog called Native Appropriations, and she wrote a blog called Magic in North America Part 1. Ugh. <laughs> and it responds directly to the pieces about Native Americans that Rowling wrote, but it highlights the discussion of Rowling's use of skinwalkers, which are not something that I'm going to elaborate on because that is disrespectful to the Navajo community. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it because they don't want you to talk about it because it's none your business. Mm-hmm. But Rowling, the worst offense of that, when she was asked to elaborate on that on Twitter about the concept of skinwalkers and animagi and how those blended, she said, there are no skinwalkers in my version. They're animagi, and that's what it is. She just categorically said, this is my world now, and this is how I choose to interpret this thing that doesn't belong to me. And that is one of the most blatant and upsetting examples of cultural appropriation that Rowling committed in such a public space and with no shame. There was really no excusing that one. And I know for me, that was one of the watershed tweets of hers where I was just like, oh, there's no backpedaling on this one. There's no way to reinterpret this or fix this. So just to make sure, what she did was she took a positive part of 
someone else's culture, skinwalkers. And then she said, those actually don't exist in my version of the world. It's all this other thing that I've already established. Like she took away a positive piece of culture and said, actually, no, that that's not a thing. She took a valuable piece for the Navajo nation. As far as I know from the little that they have, that we know about it. Officially published, right? Yes, that is public. Skinwalkers are not associated as a positive thing, but they are deeply rooted Mm -hmm. in Navajo culture and they have skinwalkers have interceded into other nations in different interpretations. Navajo, I believe, is the one that is mainly associated with it, and why the only reason I know a little more is because I'm from New Mexico, and I'm familiar a little bit with the Navajo Nation, but she took something, it was really more something valuable and something that the Navajo Nation has said you are not to speak about if you are not from our culture. This is not for you. I think it was Adrienne's piece where she said, I think the frustrating thing that can happen in these discussions, especially for people outside of these communities, is they want what they can't have. And Adrienne Keene in her piece said, nope, full stop, that's it, sorry. If that makes you upset, sorry, too bad, because this is ours and we have every right to keep it as ours. We owe you nothing. And I think that is what is most offensive about that, is that Rowling took something that was not hers. She did not ask. She did not get information from the source. She did not use own voices. She just saw a thing that I'm assuming she Googled because she does not seem to know things about America much at all and used it as her own. I think like that does transition us into where we are today. And I think that's just important to touch on because I think that's why we're here doing this per- these particular episodes is because, whoa, what the hell happened? And I think looking at Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling and the Wizarding World franchise in this way can help us all heal through this process because this is a healing process. I know for me personally, this is a healing process. You two can see it. <laughs> there are two devoted shelves of Harry Potter behind me. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, that was a journey to get down to those two shelves. Those two shelves and two shelves in front of me that have film stuff, those are my most precious pieces of Harry Potter that I am willing to display and willing to explain why I have them out. But that comes from having a giant shelving unit with every single thing of Harry Potter on it that I had bought, every single memory. I have put thousands and thousands of dollars into this franchise. I loved this. This franchise was my life for a really good portion of my life. And I'm sure, I mean, Delia and Mike, you both have obviously as well some very special memories with Harry Potter and very special people that we've connected with over this franchise. And to know that Rowling has is now at a place where she has said, to a specific community, no, you don't get to come here. After, I think the thing that we think about when we hear this talk is for those of us who were long-term and saw the end of this, which I think we some of us consider the end to be the Deathly Hallows Part Two premiere, when she got up on stage and she made this beautiful impassioned speech after a string of beautiful impassioned speeches, and she ended with, Hogwarts will always be there to welcome you home. It was equivalent to when Lin-Manuel Miranda stood on stage and said, love is love is love is love is love. Like, it was the same thing. It was this open door for everybody. So to suddenly hear just over 10 years later, no. There is one group I don't want here and one group that I'm going to just 
tear to shreds and gaslight everybody into believing is villainous. And I'm going to play Umbridge. This is the care. I thought I was Dumbledore and Hermione. Surprise, I'm Umbridge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think what you're saying here really gets to my interpretation of what has been happening with her recently is that she has her opinion. And I think this also speaks to a lot of what we're saying is the shortcomings is not talking to other people. She has her opinion and she's not interested in listening to people that disagree from it. There is even that quote recently where she said something like 90% of my fans agree with me. They're just not being public about it, yeah. which is just not the case at all. Unless you're doing the math that we all are not her fans anymore. So the only people left are people that agree with her. But regardless, she was always bad at math. <laughs> regardless, she is at a point right now where she doesn't want to hear anyone saying anything different than what she already believes. And she's not open to learning and she's not open to changing and growing and she's not open to hearing from various communities their perspective on situations that affect them or come from them. And that is exactly what I tried to do here with these episodes is do the exact opposite of what J.K. Rowling is doing. And hopefully these episodes can serve for people listening to understand. And I think that where do we go from here is obviously we do what everyone I've known in the Harry Potter fandom is doing is condemn what she is doing, explain why it is wrong, listen to the people she's affecting, people from the communities she's affecting. And I think to go beyond it, I've always said, like, you don't have to remove and you shouldn't let J.K. Rowling tarnish, like, any positive memories you have with Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. But also, you have to know why what she's doing is wrong and you have to condemn what she is doing. And I think with anything, whether it's about Harry Potter or bigger picture in a fandom or just bigger picture in a life is just try to learn. Always welcome other people and especially those who are talking from experience about things that affect them or problems that come from the group that they represent, etc. You just got to listen to people and you have to be able to adapt and change even when you think something is silly. When people first told me that I should stop saying things like that's so crazy on the podcast, I was a curmudgeonly boy and I said, oh, come on, everyone knows what I mean. Mm -hmm. But I changed because some people didn't feel welcome in the audience space and I made the change. And now looking back, I realized that, yes, I shouldn't have been saying that. Mm -hmm. And you just got to be open to changing. And she hasn't done that. And it really seems like she is a lost cause. If she wants to come back and realize her wrong ways and admit her faults, welcome her back with open arms. Sure. Whatever. Doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. <laughs> no. So we're going to leave her behind for now and just move on and try to be better people and not do what she has done. I would say also to your audience that some people may, you know, not be used to practicing critical fandom, or for some people, it may just be like, well, this is just a fantasy. But I would urge you to listen to more people who are being critical and know that, you know, at this point, I'm super critical of the stories, but I still love them. Like you guys can't see my wall, but there's plenty of Harry Potter art behind me. I still have a brand new copy of the books. Um, that I bought secondhand, but I still have them. Mm -hmm. And like, it's always going to have a place in my life. And I think for a lot of people, I remember when, you know, Magic in North America was kind of my final straw. I was like, that's it. I can't do this anymore with JK Rowling. It was hard at the time because a lot of people in the fandom weren't having these conversations. Like there were corners of us and pockets of us, but yeah. mostly on Twitter, you were met with, you know, pushback and just trying to have that conversation. And I think what I've come to realize is people get so defensive because 
it feels counterintuitive to criticize the thing you love. But as somebody who's been doing it for many years now, I can say that for me, it's only increased my love of the thing. Mm -hmm. Granted, right now it is hard to navigate that, especially since she's gone full turf. And, you know, that is a hard thing to navigate. I don't have the answers. I'm still navigating it myself. And I know a lot of my friends are navigating it and we're all coming to different conclusions. However, I think as you grow and as you start practicing it more, you'll find a deeper connection with the story. And whether that's closure for you, great, but it also could mean that you're able to grow into a new relationship with the story and continue on. And I just encourage people to be open-minded to doing that work. The major points I hope that your listeners take away from this, and I really hope too that, because I know I've I've read your reviews on iTunes, Mike. I know you got those listeners who are like, ah, it's too political. Oh, the book's about a corrupt government. Oh, this <laughs> is too political. <laughs> I hope that listeners who feel that way about Harry Potter, because I've experienced that discussion too from listeners of the previous podcasts I was on, that you recognize that, as Mike just said, it's always been political. Mm-hmm. Rowling wanted it to be political. She intended it to be political. And I think a lot of us readers took more away from it than she did, apparently. And the important thing now, I think there, I think like Delia said, there are so many ways to move forward and to find your new relationship with Harry Potter. I am in the headspace with that right now. Well, feel free to follow me on Twitter if you want to join me on that journey or chat. But the thing that's most important to me and a realization I had as somebody who just consumed Harry Potter over and over again for years is it's time to stop asking Rowling for these pieces of representation because she's not going to give them to you. She is not the only person in the world who has influence and power and creativity. And just there are so many people waiting in the wings. There are so many people out there who already have wonderful, beautiful things that they are putting out there that we are not paying attention to or we are not lifting up enough, especially within marginalized communities. And they have stories for you. They have creativity for you. And you need to go find them. And I may be so humble as to suggest that you visit your local library because Mm -hmm. (laughs) staff like me are trained to help you do that. If you come to the desk at a library and you say, I read Harry Potter, I'd like to read something else. We're ready for you. We've got lots to go. We've got a lot of stuff on the shelves for you. So come see us at the library. (laughs) See the library. A good note to end this meaty discussion on. Delia and Michael, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I've gotten a lot out of this. I hope the listeners have as well. I will put links in the notes of this podcast where people can find you online. We'll put links to the various things that we referenced in this episode. And again, thank you so much for lending your expertise and explaining things, answering my questions, being a part of this going over time all of the things <laughs> no, thank, thank you, you all so thank much you. i appreciate yeah, it this is wonderful i i hope this can help some people out again feel free to reach out to the potterless gmail account if you want to talk further about anything i'm always welcome to learn more or just discuss more or answer questions if i can help or direct your questions to other people whatever it is delia if people want to find you doing stuff on the internet, where can they do so? Well, you can find me over at on instagram at the nerds are typing where it's an it character typing account where we go through different fandom properties and critically analyze character through the lens of the Enneagram and MBTI. We also have a podcast where you can find most places where podcasts are found. There's a link for that there. And we're also on Twitter at nerds are typing because character limits are a thing. And you can find me at Delia is typing. Ironically, not a relation that just 
was a coincidence. Oh, there you go. Michael, where can people find you? You can find me at the somewhat regrettable Twitter handle at Lupin Patronus. <laughs> but, but hey, I still love him. I still love him. You can find me on Twitter at Lupin Patronus. I'd be happy to talk to you all there. I love connecting with Harry Potter fans. I hope someday to reconnect with you all in be it podcast or vlogger form, but I'm in the middle of a master's degree right now, so I'm a little busy, mm-hmm. but I love talking to you all there. I've had some wonderful conversations with you all. I like to present stuff, especially about what we're going through on this journey with reconnecting and moving on, moving forward from Harry Potter. I try to share my experience with that. And I'm always asking y'all questions about what you're doing with this transition too, because it's a lot to handle and we don't have a guidebook for this one except for each other. So yeah, come join me there. It's a great way to put it. Well, again, thank you both so much for joining. Listeners, thank you for listening. And as they say in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, before they go up to their librarians and ask, hey, what should I read? <laughs> Wizard on. Hey, are you sad that you don't get to hear my voice anymore just because this Potterless episode is over? Well, it doesn't mean this has to be the end of you hearing my voice because I make more shows than just this, and one of those podcasts through Multitude is Horse. Horse is a basketball podcast that I co-host with my buddy Adam Amawala where we talk about basketball but just the entertaining elements of it to prove that anyone can follow the sport, not just dude bro sports heads. We talk about player drama, Twitter beefs, all these wild stories from NBA past and present just to show that it's a fun thing that we can all get behind and you can just follow it for the drama. You can also watch the sport if you like. There's no wrong way to appreciate basketball and we are here to share the more fun elements with all of you. Episodes come out every other Monday. We have some interviews with some really fun folks. We just did an episode with Josh Gondelman, who you might know from his stand-up career or the fact that he helps create the Jesus and Miro show. Very fun stuff. All of the episodes, over 80 of them live at horsehoops.com or just search for horse wherever you listen to your podcasts. Potterless was created by Mick Schubert. It is hosted by Mick Schubert. It is usually edited by Mick Schubert, but today's episode was edited by Sherry Guo. It is produced by Mick Schubert as well as Vicky Garcia, Christine, Aaron Johnson, Klauser, Lopu, Marchismo, Juan Sanfeliu, Rosemary, Dodge, Marie, Lisa C. Keen, Audra, Eleanor, Kerlin, Nikita Power, Rachel Guthrie, Alex Consulver, John Kotker, Noel Basile, Claire Spencer, Rory Collier, Veronica Bartova, Lada Bartova, Noah, Jennifer Marklu, Justin Montero, Jacob Parrish, Maya Gray, Polly Burge, Zena Rosnowski, Harlan Haskins, Nikki Harris, Kine, Sarah Shedder, Marta Morrison, Flora Sake, Skyla Lily, Edel Ryan, Professor Threat, Ellie Hoskov Chova, Michael David Yordi, Kelly Otilio, Kerry Crumpler, Connie Binkowski, Jen Went, Nedry OS, Will Huser, Mariah Riga, Ashton Gabrielson, Brittany Gutierrez, Phelan, The Meadows Family, Ginny from the Block, Heather Langeel, Kevin Stewart, Jarls Fiven, Peter McGrath, Callahan and Darius, Bella Barlack, Melanie Demi, Reese Dignan, Joseph Torp, Madison, Don't Call Me an Infidora, Sabrina Balsaker, Sophia Loves Pigs, Farzan Jarabat, Melanie DeGraeve, Matt Barger, Okamahime, Bony Pony, Kelsey Gillespie, Rike Mango Jensen, Taylor Payne, Megan Moon, Riley Kitas, Laurel Happy, Erica Butler, Kendra Hertz, Natanya Page, Yogan Shanley, Darcy Alexandra Harrison, Sandra Rose, Craig McRoberts, Demi Lynn, Michelle Spurgeon, Henrika Wolf, Casey Canales, Megan Stampin, Jack Skitzes, Dane Nemcher, Little One, Ilaria Vicentin, Gregory Hughes, Call Call Mother Feathers, Ribbon Monstrosity, Jack Parr, Serenity Allen, Haley Hastings, Sabrina Casanova, Jenny Browers, Eileen Gazesh, Annette Pipitone, Hufflepuff alumni, Brett Clausen, Mary Price, Artemis, Samantha McNamara, Nina Campley, Tatiana Schmidt, Carries Davies, Little Vomit Spiders Running Around, Punkfish, Wire Warrior 4976, Joe Sander, Michael Peavy, Maya Saunders, Jasmine Ellis, Neely, Tate Sasson, Sam Sam Reby, Adriana Hernandez, John Savio, Jody Dunamorphine, Nash Sanadiki, Emma L. Oscar Thomason, Sean Kirkoba, Greg Bonastali, Matthew J. Moreland, Ping Vinachek, Nani, Emma Kui, Tough Bayfong, Micah Alma Cloward, Michaela Veneer, Matthew Morrison, Steamed Nuggets, and Can't I Got It? 
Web design by Kelly Schubert, and the music is by Bettina Campomanis. If you want to find us on social media, you can at facebook.com slash potterylist, twitter.com slash potterylistpod, instagram.com slash potterylistpodcast, or reddit.com slash r slash potterylist. For any and all information about the show, you can go to potterylistpodcast.com. Bonus content lives at patreon.com slash potterylist. Merch lives at potterylistpodcast.com slash merch. And tickets to our live shows live at potterylistpodcast.com slash live. If you think of someone that might like the show, why don't you reach out and tell them about it? Say, hey, there's a show, Potterylist. I think you'd like it. It's free to listen to. Check it out. Or you could leave us a rating and review online or talk about us on social media. Anything helps. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, as they say in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, wizard on. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.